Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. My name is Adam Jones. We just interviewed Greg McEwen, the author of Essentialism. Mate, what a ledge. Uh, he had a boss chair. It was a sick chair that he was sitting in yeah. and had some sick things to say as well. We're talking about essentialism and busyness, how busy, busy, mm. busy, busy, not yep. good. Yeah, so he's all about the pursuit of less and yep. you know cutting the things out of your life So, and thinking about some of the things you can go big on by getting rid of all the, the yes. little pissy shit that you know you don't really want to be doing anyway. 100%. He had some good stuff to say about Elon Musk's uh, first principles thinking oh, as well, which was sick. fucking awesome. And that's someone who's not busy for the sake of being busy. He <laughs> does some good shit. Yeah. <laughs> so, no, yeah, so top-notch stuff. I hope you guys enjoyed as much as we did. Without any further ado, here is Big Dog Greg McEwen. Probably just start from a an experience I had a few weeks ago when I was in the office, and and it's probably I don't know it's happening so much now. When I ask someone in the day, like, "How are you doing?" and "How are you?" and then and then they reply just, "Oh, so so fucking busy," and they kind of just do a, a sound like, <laughs> and um keep and keep walking it, and and you know it might sound comical, but it it, it is kind of scary because these people are probably going to go through their lives and, and maybe miss the whole journey. So you know. I guess what's going on to, to start? Well, first of all, I just so relate to that. People used to say, when you ask them how they're doing, they'd say fine or some other, you know, nondescript generic statement. Busy is the new word and our language often gives us clues into what's going on in the deeper culture. Uh, and in this case, I think that we've entered a busyness bubble. Mm. So just like the real estate bubble or the dot-com bubble or, you know, all these things that have, have it, it's where something has sort of become overvalued, an overvalued asset, and everybody culturally gets all into it. And it pushes up the perceived value of something until what the bubble burst means is that the real value of seven zone again. Uh, and so that's what's happening with business, business, uh, its own perceived value. Uh, and so people are outperforming each other in how busy they are. That this mm. has become its own measure of importance. I remember talking to um, a woman not so very long ago who said, uh, "I said, how are you?" And she said, "Oh, Greg, I'm so busy." <laughs> yeah. She said, "I've I've slept on average four hours a night for the last two weeks." Yeah. <laughs> and she's smiling, and I sort of wonder, well, why is she smiling? What 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 is What's going on here? And she didn't say it, but she almost seemed to be saying, look, I hate to break it to you, Greg, but I'm just a little more important than you are. <laughs> she actually you know, said it straight out. No. <laughs> she, she did, but she almost did. The sense was there. And it, it was this competition that, that being yeah, busier yeah. is being more important. And the question, of course, is, is it? Mm. Is that true? Uh, if, if it is true, then we should double down on it. Yeah, yeah. That's... Uh, Let's be twice as busy, three times as busy, four times. Let's just keep going. Let's not yeah. sleep. Mm. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> let's react to everything all the time. Let's, if it works, if it's true, if we're investing in something that's real, keep going with it. Mm. But on the basis that we're not, on the basis that we're investing in something that is actually overvalued already, then 
we're better off getting out of the bubble before it bursts. Yes. So that we can see it for what it is. Stop, stop buying real estate, you know, that we can't afford before the bubble bursts is always smarter. Hmm. Uh, so there's always a, ret- a better return on investment uh, to see the bubble before you have to see it. Nice. I really like that analogy of the busyness bubble. We've been talking for the last 12 months that Australia's in a real estate bubble, uh, but it hasn't, right. it hasn't popped yet. But I think, I think you're right that everyone's just getting more and more and more busy and every, everyone thinks that everyone's busy, so I've got to be busy as well. But I think that is getting to the point where it is about to pop with books like Essentialism and, and movements where people are realizing that there's a massive difference between activity and productivity. And just that because you're doing a lot of things doesn't mean that you're actually achieving anything um, or contributing anything of actual importance so what do you what do you say to the people who the, the one the one that really uh, irks me is someone who's oh, I was in meetings all day my whole day was back-to-back meetings that's like that's just very unproductive busyness surely well you know the, the question isn't whether it's personal time or meetings time in my view it's just whether you're really focused on what is essential. So that's the first question. As obvious as that sounds, it's creating space to figure out what is essential, what matters, what to discern between what appears on the surface to be many equally important activities. Uh, because when we're reactive, when we're, when we're just, we're, you know, here's the latest email, here's the latest text, we can be conned into believing, well, it's all, it's all about the same. Mm. As if, the work of life would be, to use the metaphor, um, shoveling coal. Mm-hmm. And so the job is to shovel more of it, and that's how you win. Well, maybe that's how life really works. Uh, then see my previous note about doing more of it, yeah. uh, doubling down on it. But on the basis that we might actually be in a diamond mine, it's like waking up to that reality. So hold on, it's not about how much stuff I just haul out of here. It's how well I can identify those really highly valuable activities. Mm. And, and that's like a whole different approach to life. A, uh, instead of this undisciplined pursuit of more, we're just going after more and more without thinking about it, you start to say, well, hold on, almost everything is trivial. Almost everything is, is actually nonsense. Yeah. A few things are exceedingly valuable, and I have to figure out what those things are. So that's step one. What mm-hmm. is essential? Yeah, nice, nice. And you said uh, you said we get conned into thinking that you know everything everything is important. So, so then we go an inch in every direction rather than just focusing on the on, on the one direction as you describe it in the book. So, so how do we actually get conned and, and tricked into thinking you know what what you know everything is important as opposed to just a few things or one thing? Well, I think what it has to do with is that that's the culture that we're in. Yeah. I don't think people say. I'm just going to focus on way too many things. That's the strategy that I think will best produce great breakthrough results in my life professionally and great you know, relationships and a joy to, to be alive. I don't think they think that one will lead to the other. It's just that that's what everyone's doing. So it's a default way of making decisions. Well, everyone's acting this way, so you know, I've got to do what they're doing. Now, the, the, the question to, to get to your to your question is why is the culture that Mm. way? And I think you actually have to do a a sort of quick historical lesson on this because, because I think that, um, you know, the industrial revolution introduced a way of thinking efficiency, basically that said, look, it is about how much you can get through this system as efficiently as possible. And that was fine as far as it went, but it's not actually a great 
metaphor for how people work and how we operate. And um, one of the evidences, I think, of the shift that took place here is that the word priority itself came into the English language in the 1400s, uh, and it was singular. And I always ask people, you know, what did it? What do they think it meant? And of course, it meant exactly the same then as it does now, which is it's the very first thing. It's just one thing. Mm. And what's striking, according to Drucker, is that it stayed um, singular for the next 500 years. So you know, think about that, that nobody in the English-speaking world was using the term priorities mm. uh, at all. So it, that, that came in the 1900s. So in the Industrial Revolution, something, was, something changed there, a certain logic. It was working so well increasing efficiency that people said, well, then everything must be like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it was like, throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yes, it was really good at certain management. It was incredibly good at increasing the, 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 the throughput of products, exactly the same repeatable products. It's great mm. for that. Mm. Not great for getting humans to live lives that really matter. Yeah. Not mm. at all parallel. Mm. And, and, and it didn't stop us, for example, not understanding that distinction. So then when we came to create mass education, uh, we just followed the factory model. And mm. so schools today look almost identical to a factory yeah, in yeah. the sense that you have certain areas. Well, that's the biology area. I mean, yeah. the whole world doesn't work like that, does it? I mean, we don't have, you know, we don't think of, there isn't the biology section of the world uh, and the physics section of the world mm. and the math sex, uh, section of the world. It's, it's just all integrated, connected. Mm. But somehow the factory system became involved. Now, I know you're getting more than you wanted that you bargained for for the why. But this is, this is all the build-up. Then post the Second World War, there was this huge shift uh, that happened in, in, in you know, most of the developed world where people say, well, when, what, what this is about is about getting more of this stuff. He who wins, dies with the most toys mm-hmm. wins. And it was a shift away from these sort of deeper values, deeper character issues. Um, it, it's uh, to use the, the Roman term for this is panem, um, which is um, which is uh, circus and bread. So instead of people dealing with this m- massively psychologically, socially discombobulating experience of the Second World War, instead of dealing with it, like for example, how long did people deal with that experience? Like, did we take a year off to like reflect and think? A year of mourning? No, yeah. we didn't do a year. We didn't do a month. Not a week. We just got back into yeah. it. And what we got into, this is, I think, the second part of the con, mm. is we got into consumerism as if that was the thing. And, in fact, you can go back and, as I've done it, some research on, on a very deliberate strategy that was put in place in the United States and, therefore, you know, outsourced into the world, um, where it was, we are going to replace religion and spirituality, we're going to replace these issues with consumerism, it will become the new the, the new source of spiritual structure. And so, the third the third part of this con is in the last ten years we've all been witness to it. It's where we move from being connected to hyper connected, and this is sort of the birth of uh, social media and smartphones. And it's not that those things are necessarily sort of inherently non essentialist. It's that they were built on top of a culture that was already Mm. assuming this way of living and of thinking this basic logic that if you can just fit it all in, then you can have it all, Mm. Uh, then you can keep everyone happy. And so they were, they were built with these assumptions in place. And so they, they, I think reinforced them. 
and then accelerated them. So look, that's the that's the historical, you know, analysis for the circumstance we find ourselves in. Yeah. This is why the culture is mm. the way it is. Uh, the question now is, of course, what do we do about it? How do we respond to this? Yeah, mm. that's right. So yeah, we're at the point now where every second of our day is filled up, and and I never, I don't think we ever feel bored anymore because we've always got our phone. Just nice waiting there. Scroll, yeah. So I'm, um, I guess, moving on to the solution. Can you just start off with, with, I guess, um, just telling us a bit about what we need, what we can do now with um, the situation we got ourselves in. Well, I mean, you just you just used the, the phrase, right? You said uh, you know we're never bored, and, and I remember I was at Twitter doing a presentation on essentialism, and and somebody there said, you know, do you remember what it was like to be bored? <laughs> uh, which. I thought it was a little ironic given that they were the ones that did it to us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but, but nevertheless, you know, he, he's saying it used to happen automatically. So prior to this period that we're describing these forces, uh, I mean, if, if can you imagine the difference pre the industrial revolution to what a person would think about in a given day, like what space they would have to think. I mean, I'm not saying we go back to an agrarian society, but just imagine if you're out in the field all day, working in nature, being, having natural systems reinforced all the time, instead of these artificial instantaneous reactive systems that we've now built around us. So it's a, it's a huge difference. So, so what do we do? We, we, we have to, we have to reclaim uh, space. And so when we say, I said it the first, the first step to essentialism to figure out what's essential, well, how do we do that? You have to create space to do it. So, uh, you, you know, I'm suggesting, uh, you know, people should schedule a personal quarterly offsite. So every 90 days, they're taking one day to evaluate, well, where have I been? Where am I? And where do I want to, uh, to go over the next 90 days? Uh, you know, you get to two or three things that you say, these are really important. These are essential things to me. Uh, and, and then every week you go through a planning process where you design your week around those two or three objectives. Uh, daily planning. I went through a planning process today. I and mean, this is all the same idea, which is creating space to think about what really matters. I mean, my mm -hmm. process this morning was a simple enough one. I'm sure other people have done similar things. Uh, but, but the way I did it today is I uh, had a, got post-it notes out, wrote down per post-it note, you know, one item uh, per, per, per post-it note, tried to get everything out, out of the closet of my mind, so to speak, and, and look at it. And the, the reason I did it the, that way is that if I could do one of these things, which would be more important, mm. just kept doing that like a game until I identified, okay, here are the top, four or five things that really are essential to me today. And I put them in priority order. Yeah. And at least one of those items, some of those are, are, are repeated for me. Some of those things are, are built into the routine now, but at least one of those items would have just got lost in the, in the sort of the rush of the day and the reaction of the day. It was a totally critical item to get done today. It took me two hours to do it. Uh, mm. and, and it was just, the process made it possible. And so I think, these are all things that we do. So I think even even an hour a day of that kind of planning process, I know it doesn't sound realistic to people, but it, the, the return on that hour yes. is so significant. It's well worth the time. Every time I do it, and I don't get to do it every day. I, don't, I, I you know, 
that would that'd be exaggerated to say I never miss a day of yeah. a, a process <laughs> like that. But I do it often, uh, some version of what I just described, and I never regret it. It always pays its dividends. Within that day itself, I feel like I've been paid well, yeah. uh, both in the, the quality of the work I got done, the importance of the work I got done, and the quality experience that I'm having doing it. So that's, that's kind of, I think, the work to be done uh, to, to begin to create space back on our calendar, back in our life, to be able to think about what really matters. Nice. I like that. So you said that obviously at the start, so we need to work out what's essential and we do that by giving that space and then you, we've got these planning cycles. Uh, you talked about in the book as well that you know if you've, if you've got a whole bunch of work to do and your boss comes over and say, hey, can you do this? And you need to realize what's essential and what's not essential. And you need to be able to push back and say, no, I, that, you know, that's not important. I think it's pretty tough for someone who's at the bottom, someone who's pretty young, how can we say to our boss, no, this is not essential. <laughs> what the work you're giving me is not essential. It's not part of what I yeah. see is most important. How do we actually push back on, on our boss like that? So, so this is, this sort of question is, is I, I get quite a lot. And, mm. um, I mean, often people will say something like, look, I can't just suddenly say no to my boss's boss in front of a bunch of people at work, you know, and I, and I always think, uh, yeah, I uh, I wouldn't start there. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't seem like a good idea to me either. I think that might be a career limiting thing to do. Uh, what I, I think is you've got to start small and with yourself. Yeah, you know, like start this way. Um, take the first ten seconds of your day and own it. Mm, nice. I figure out ten what seconds, do you yeah. want. To, to, to spend the first 10 seconds of your day thinking about, uh, focused on getting yourself sort of attuned. You're going to have a lot of first 10 seconds of your day, right? And the cumulative effect of that is tremendous over a 30, 40, 50 year period of time. And so to, to the idea that you design tiny amounts of the things you do often, and then you build that up and you say, okay, well, I'm actually going to eventually get to the point where, yeah, the first hour of my day is truly mine and I'm, now I'm planning and I'm thinking and, mm. and designing in the way we've just described. All of that work is preliminary because, you know, I wrote a book called Essentialism, but sometimes when people read it, especially, especially when they feel very uncomfortable about the second step, which is to eliminate non-essentials. Yeah. When they get uncomfortable with that or it just grabs their attention so much that they start to sort of think that I wrote um, a book all about saying no mm. uh, to everyone and everything all the time. And I didn't. That would be a different book. That would be a book called Noism. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I didn't write that book. I wrote a book called Essentialism. And it really, really matters because if you simply say, well, I'm going to start saying no to my boss, uh, you know, like I said, I, I already told you what I think about that, just directly doing that. But it, you also haven't earned the right to do that. The, the right to do it is that you really have identified something that's more important. Mm -hmm. So, so I remember, um, uh, you know, we all know that Bill, that, that Steve Jobs was able to say no to a thousand things, according to him, to say yes to one thing, and that's all very well for the CEO and founder of the company. But what about the rest yeah. of us? And I found more interesting a story of a person who said no to Steve Jobs, yeah, well. uh, and, and lived to tell the tale. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this is when Steve had, had left Apple and he was at, um, uh, he'd started Next, his next venture, and he wanted a great logo. And so he went to, uh, to, to Paul Rand and Rand came to him and, and Steve was explaining how the, the client 
relationship would work. And he said, look, I need you to bring me a bunch of options and I'll tell you what I think and I'll make it happen the way I want it to happen. And, 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 and Rand listened to all of that and finally said, <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> yeah. He said, I will solve your problem for you mm-hmm. and you will pay me. Yeah. But I really will figure out the, 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 the primary thing you're trying to achieve. I will think through the value uh, and, and I will bring that to you. And Steve agrees to it. Later describes the solution that Rand brought. He said, he said this was a, a jewel of a logo. Mm. Hmm. Uh, and then added this in very important insight for all the rest of us. He said, he said Rand was the ultimate professional. Mm. Okay. The ultimate professional because you say no to everyone and everything without thinking about it? Of course not. So why is he the ultimate professional? He explains it. He said, because he thought through what would create value for me more deeply than I had. Mm, And that's why it's essentialism, not noism. So with your boss, what what I think is always reasonable, always wise, especially as you develop this, these, these, the first habit, which is creating clarity around what's essential is that you are able to go into work with a clearer sense of what your boss wants mm. and what would be valuable to him or her than they do. Mm. And so that when they say, hey, listen, I want you to do this, you don't suddenly say no, but you pause. And, and, and in the pause, you get to have a conversation. You say, listen, I'm very happy to do that. But let me share what I think might be really most valuable. Let me share the, the, the two or three things here that I think really could, could push the needle for you and what I understand you're trying to achieve. And, and and then let's talk about this this new project and this new assignment, this new thing that you want me to do. Mm-hmm. You see, that's that's now. Of course, you can't always do that every time. That could be just irritating. But I think it, it, it becomes a very reasonable, valuable conversation. In fact, it is key to being able to shift from being an order taker to becoming a trusted advisor. Mm. So you start to move up the value chain. And, mm-hmm. and that, for the most junior employee, still is an aspiration and ought to be. Yeah. Otherwise, they're going to stay in that role for 20 years, uh, get exhausted, get worn out, get doing fed up. Doing everyone's errands. Yeah. Doing yeah. everyone's errands. And, and, and so you pay the price, but you don't just pay the price and then stay at that level. Um, all of us will plateau at whatever mm. level of selectivity we, uh, we stop Mm. yeah one of the interesting one of the best points in the book and, and kind of on this topic it's like it's saying no to these things just so you got room to think about you know what can i actually go big on so it might be for that young person they might be able to do you know the, the highest value work for the company and, and 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 in the end in the long run it's probably it could be the best option to just just choose what's the most important thing well i think so but but i also want it to be you know it's about having the right skill set to go with the right mindset you, you've got to develop a whole new repertoire of skills to be able to have these conversations i mean you, you, first day of the job of course you want to be well, actually i remember working with an executive who who did want to be a good team player moved into a new organization he, he was he was less senior in the new organization because it was much larger and he thought i suppose like any frontline employee might feel well i've just got to say yes to everyone and everything without thinking about it but that strategy Instead of endearing him to everyone, instead of it making him popular with everybody, within a very short period of time, it, it had stressed him out. <laughs> Quality of his work is going down 
Therefore, the quality of his relationships are also going down because nobody wants to work with somebody who isn't delivering good work to them. Mm. And so he was so frustrated, even though he was an award-winning employee in a previous company, he started to feel like, look, I've just got to get out of this one. And he almost did retire, almost got, you know, quit. And somebody said, no, you should, you should retire in role, in your current role. And, and he said, um, he, at first he didn't really understand what they were saying, but they explained it that you've got to imagine that you only got paid for the value you create. Mm. And the, by the end of that year with this new lens, this essentialist lens, uh, he said, I got my life back. I always think it's curious, like from who? Uh, <laughs> and then he said, I was eating dinner with my wife every night. I was going to the gym every night. He says, at work, he thought he might get fired, but he wasn't fired. He actually ended up with one of the largest bonuses of his whole career yeah. and his performance evaluations had gone up. Mm. I'm not saying that would be true for every single person, but I do believe that there's something as universally applicable in that story as basic arithmetic, which is you can either do a few things superbly well or many things averagely well and the, 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 the faster way to distinguish yourself, the faster way to make the highest contribution uh, grows out of um, being more selective and thoughtful, mm. pausing at very least to consider and, and to be able to have a conversation. So I think that I think in a corporate environment, you can't just simply say no to everything. No, but you can pause and start having conversations yeah nice i like that and i think the i think it's called the peter principle that you know people rise to their level of incompetence but you said that people rise to that level of selectivity so i like that you said that it's not about you know what stuff you're doing but it's about the value that you're creating and i think we're stuck in you know accountants have to bill in 12 minute billing cycles and lawyers have to bill for time engineers have to bill for time do you think we'll get yeah. to the point where it's not billing on time but billing on value creation well, well, just 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 ask yourself when when time billing became the norm across all industries. Mm, yeah. Mm. <laughs> like when you when you when you're working in a field, the job the job was to get the harvest in. The job was to plant the field. Yeah. There, there, yeah. Isn't, there isn't actually endless amount of work. There, it's not. It's not. It is a known quantity of work, and the work must get done. Yes. Maybe you get paid by the, by the day, but it isn't this incremental tiny, well, ti how, much hour, how many hours you work is your value. It was a, a different kind of time. Time, this, this obsession with value equaling you know, minutes and time is money is, is an industrial age idea. And so when you can, when you imagine, and I believe we are shifting through this phase right now into a, into a post-industrial age era, I mean, people have all sorts of words for it, right? Um, the World Economic Forum talks about the, the fourth uh, industrial age. I mean, it's all an attempt to say that we're shifting into something new now. And I think that as we shift into the new, um, yes, this, this efficiency model will give way because in fact it is so limited yeah, to what definitely. humans can actually create and produce. I mean, let's take some extreme example. Let's take like, like an Oprah. So, so, so did Oprah, is Oprah's like value and, and contribution about how many hours she's working today? Mm, I, I doubt it. <laughs> yeah. did, she, did she produce, is she, is she paid more 
because she worked more minutes. Yeah. I mean, it, it's sort of it's nonsense, isn't it? Mm. Did she work a hundred times harder, a thousand times harder than other people? No, I don't believe that. That's a non, it's complete nonsense. Mm. It's about the selectivity and the thoughtfulness, and and uh, and and that can, we can start that at any time, and we can plateau at any time. There's no level of success a person can achieve where this. Mm can't become true mm. if they if they start saying yes to everything at their new level then they'll start to plateau at that level mm. uh, yeah it's an awesome point you bring up because if you if you think about it everyone's got the same amount of time in the week and some people seem to get more done than others and if you look at a guy like elon musk for example he's you know running three billion dollar companies and i've got the same amount of time in the week and sometimes i think i'm busy you know, there's obviously some huge differences between between me and him, and 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 for everyone, it must come down to this selection of actually what you're spending your time on, and and what you're working hard on in the first place. Well, I mean, Elon Musk is a terrific example in lots of ways. Uh, I mean, at one level, you could say, well, how essentialist is it if you've got these you know, three different companies? But the mission of each company is is a, they're, they're each like really great illustration oh, of the essential intent that I describe in the book. These are not vision and mission statements that you have nobody knows what they're saying. As almost all vision and mission statements are, they're, they're, they're really um, so hard to understand what is really meant by them. It's meaningless. That I think that they, they are actually meaningless to people. They, they, they just is completely ignored. They take months of work to do. They get printed. They get put on the wall mm. and then totally ignored. And... And, and and that's this is one of the key ways, the key advantages he's given to these to these companies is to have a mission that every single person knows what it really is. The the intent is that clear. That's one thing he's done. But let me just share another thing now we're riffing on Elon Musk because because a question I've had has been, well, how how does he and how do these companies break through uh, the the next level of innovation. How do they mm. leapfrog on innovation? Mm. Uh, that, that's, they, they've done it so many times. It is curious to me. Yeah. Well, what, what are they doing? And it's, it's come to... It, Elon talks about something called um, first principle thinking. Are you familiar with this? Uh, give it to us. Give it to us. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> so f- first principle thinking it isn't something he created. It's a philosophical idea. So it's like predates him and us by like you know thousands of years but but he's applying it in an engineering term so so first principle thinking is a way of making decisions let me compare it to the two that we're more familiar with and i'll come back to it one way to make decisions about how we how elon musk decides to 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 invest the time and energy and resources of of a company is well what have we done in the past Mm. that is what have they done in the past as a company or What have people in this industry done in the past? So as a, as a car company, when they started Tesla, uh, they, they said, well, what does everyone else do? How do they build cars? Well, they, they take parts from all different suppliers all over the world. Then they put together the machine that they want to put together. Hmm. And then they sell their car. And that's exactly how they created the first Roadster. They, they created it in that way. So that's what we'd say that's past thinking. Yeah. What, what did they do in the past? Now, the second way of thinking is really similar, but it's what's everyone else doing now. So this is like an industry-based mm. frame for making a decision. Well, what are they all doing? Well, you say, you say well, what's Ford doing? What's, what's Jaguar doing? What's Rolls-Royce doing? What's Toyota doing? And, and then we, it's a best practice model. 
But both of these models have embedded in them the weakness that they share all the same assumptions. Yes. So they, they cannot produce breakthrough results because they are applying the, the solutions that led to the results that we're getting today. Mm. So, there's, so you have to find a new model. And the new model they're using is what he's calling first principle thinking. First principle thinking says, in an engineering frame, it says, what do we know for sure? And then you design from there. So your your truth point isn't past thinking, isn't best practice thinking. It's it's based in like engineering reality. What do we absolutely know for sure? So in the case of the of the Tesla, it was what do we know for sure about batteries? Because this was the big thing that that makes it impossible to create a breakthrough uh, car is mm. the, is the battery and the cost of the battery. And so they, they said, well, what we know for sure is that these are the elements that go into creating a battery. And these are the price. This is the price per element. So if you break it down to that level, first level thinking, uh, first principle thinking, then you find that you can create a kilowatt of, of, of energy far cheaper than uh, is currently understood in the industry. That's one example, but awesome. it's that repeated again and again. Now, that's a whole story about Musk to illustrate essentialist thinking. Mm. What is essential? What do we absolutely know for sure? What do we know is important and design from that point? Yeah. Instead of designing from, well, what's everyone else doing in this busyness bubble as it turns yeah. out, and I'll just do more of what they're doing. Yeah. And so if you want to break through to a higher level of contribution, you have to go to what you know for sure about what's really important and build from there. Phenomenal. That's, that's yeah. Oh, I've got to say that's probably one of the best stories yeah. I've heard in my, heard in my life. <laughs> Let alone on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, we a, we got to end it right there. That's, exactly. that's it. It was a, it was a phenomenal story. I think we have come full circle. I guess just as our our usual wrap up questions are: What are some of your favorite books or books that have had a, an impact on your life? You know, I, there's there's so many. Uh, I, I do love to read. I love literature. I I have found myself really pulled towards the classic literature. Uh, you know, uh, w w one of the books that uh, that I was, uh, was just looking at again was uh, Seneca's book on the shortness of life. Mm -hmm. um, the um, uh, one of my favorite essays is an essay uh, called uh, the um, the catastrophe of success. Uh, which is by, I suddenly can't remember the author, but uh, he wrote The Glass Menagerie. And, uh, and it's all about how he, how he almost was just discombobulated by the success that came from writing uh, mm. The Glass Menagerie. And how he, he has this, this, this image of him traveling everywhere, he's in hotels all the time, everyone's cleaning up after him, everyone's saying, everyone he meets seems to be saying the same thing which is oh this was such a life-changing play and it's amazing and you're amazing and he said it all just began to feel like just fakeness and 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 he's describing paradox of success in his own words yeah uh, that i describe in, in in essentialism and he said he had to go back to the essentials which were for him he had to be writing mm, yeah. if he's not writing then he, he became lost I was. I found it interesting to find that uh, that Seinfeld says exactly the same thing about stand-up comedy. Uh, here's, here's someone who does not need to be doing. He doesn't have to do stand-up no, comedy. Right? He, he has enough <laughs> money and has had a lot enough money for a long time, so he can give that up. 
But he says if he goes too long, I mean, I think he means even just days, that he hasn't been actually doing stand-up. He just doesn't even know what he does anymore. <laughs> and he's just lost. Yeah. You know, you've got to get back to what's the, the essential work that he does professionally. And, and then he has a sense of, yeah, I, okay, I'm in, I'm in my place. But success has a way of getting us out of our place surprisingly quickly. Yeah. Mm. And so we have to learn how to become successful at success. Mm. which is actually a, a far harder skill than Damn. learning how to become successful in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. That's some deep, that's some deep shit. Later on. That's some deep shit, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's good. Some good stuff. Yeah, just on, I guess uh, the, the first one you mentioned there, Seneca, on the shortness of life, it, it's probably, if you just think about our impermanence, it's probably, there's nothing that'll zap you quicker into just thinking what's essential than just realizing you've got, you know, a finite days left on the planet his his actual basic argument in in this essay now book uh, is is almost the opposite of that. Although what you said, I think, is completely true. His basic premise is that if we that that life is not short, but it is long. What makes it what creates the sensation of shortness is that we fill it with nonsense. Oh, yeah. and and that's what I think is so novel about his about his writing there is that he's going it it's not short we have all the time we need if we do the things that are only essential but if we if we do if we just start doing everything of course of course it's short of course we don't have enough time i i was working with an investor recently who said he said i realized that i had a problem when i realized that that I didn't have a problem of like, give me a couple of hours extra day and then I'll be okay. Mm. He said, he said, if you gave me 10 times the hours I have, if you gave me 240 hours a day, I still wouldn't have enough time yes. to do what I think I'm supposed to be doing. That's he said, that's when he, that was like the big hurrah for the, 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 the awakening for him. He's like, that, that's, that's not an incremental shift. That's not, no, no efficiency solving that problem. Totally. Mm. we've got to get back to a different mindset and essentialism is that I, I, mean, I, I would put it out there and I still am trying to live it myself I yeah. struggle with it all the time but this awesome. is the mindset phenomenal so, uh, so where, where can people find you if they want to know more about essentialism and, and any of the other projects you might be working on at the moment I just think you know I, I, uh, you just get on the newsletter from the website so go to gregmcewan.com and sign up for the newsletters things come out I don't, I don't spam people on there I, I'm very selective about what I write and send out, mm. um, but uh, uh, but that's a place to, awesome. to keep part of the conversation as we proceed. I'm a busy, busy man. I'm very, very important. I got lots of things to do and lots of meetings, and I am so busy, 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 boy. Now I'm walking down the office with a puffin in his hand, and he's got in fourteen hours, and he never sees his kids at night. Busy, busy, instead you need to be an essentialist. Take some space and make some choices about your life. Oh yeah. The essentialist cuts out of his life the things that aren't just important. All is left are the things that he really wants to get done in his life. You can do anything, but you can't do everything. Gotta say say some things, yes. But most things you gotta say no, no, no. No, 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 no,
Busy boy, just say no. Busy boy, just say no, please. Please say no for your kids. Your kid's gonna be young for not much longer. If you keep working from day to day, you're gonna miss everything in your life. How can you say no? Just make it awkward. That's one way. But I'd like to get the little bitch to do the work for you. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. Let that little bitch make him really busy, busy, busy. Give all the work to those graduates. Oh, and I'll take the credit. Busy boy, busy, Cause busy boy. I'm an essentialist. Yeah, yeah. I only do busy the good boy. things. I make the little bitch busy, do busy, the little busy little boy, bitch I'm work. Busy, busy, busy. No, 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 no,